shortly before Christmas of 2023, Governor Kathy Hochul vetoed legislation that would have created additional pathways for New Yorkers convicted of crimes to challenge their convictions and potentially prove their innocence. Champions of the bill argue that the state's current post-conviction processes are antiquated, resulting in New Yorkers improperly being held behind bars, while supporters of the current system contend that the proposed changes would be overly burdensome on the criminal justice system and in some cases redundant. To discuss the issue, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Erie County District Attorney John Flynn, who serves as the president of the District Attorney's Association of the State of New York. Welcome to the show, D.A. Flynn. Well, thank you, Dave. So in a letter to the governor back in July 2023, urging her to veto this legislation, you wrote that district attorneys support the purpose of the bill, quote, the prevention of wrongful convictions. But you went on to argue that this bill was not necessary to protect the rights of defendants to challenge uh, wrongful convictions. So what do you see as the meaningful tools or avenues that exist now to challenge a conviction? Well, right now we have a procedure in a criminal procedure law called a 440 motion. It's based upon criminal procedure law section 440 that provides a mechanism for defendants who believe that they have been wrongfully convicted to file a motion under a CPL 440 to have their conviction vacated. And the current framework of that statute, in my opinion, is certainly enough for defendants who perhaps have been wrongfully convicted, perhaps have been subject to improper police procedures that may have occurred years earlier, and other Brady violations on, on prosecutors, perhaps, that have occurred in the, in the past that give, like I said, that give defendants uh, the opportunity to have their convictions vacated. And it's important to note that there's a difference for convicted New Yorkers between, say, appealing a trial and, say, looking for errors in a trial, which can lead to another trial, and proving your innocence and essentially having that conviction overturned and being released. Right. So obviously there are a number of things that happen in the course of a prosecution. Uh, there are motions. There are hearings. There are rulings by the judge on identification uh, of witnesses, on suppression of evidence, on uh, whether or not a witness is allowed to talk about a certain thing or not. So there are a number of things that have happened during the course of a prosecution, the course of a trial, that perhaps were done improperly. And if they were done improperly, the defendant has a right to appeal those issues after trial, sometimes even before trial, if a motion is heard well before trial, a defendant on some occasions has the opportunity to uh, to appeal that ruling. So the appeal are on certain mainly legal rulings that occur during the course of prosecution. A 440 motion is a mechanism for a defendant to come out and say that, hey, since the trial occurred, new information has arisen, whether it's new DNA, whether it's a witness now coming forward and saying that, you know what, I lied on the witness stand and I, 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 I didn't mean what I said, or I was coerced into saying what I said, you know, whatever it may be, it's mainly predicated upon new information that comes to light after 
the prosecution and after the appeals are already said and done. Well, sticking with that pathway then of proving innocence as opposed to proving an error with the initial trial, in 2018, the state's top court ruled that New Yorkers who had been convicted of a crime and wanted to make a claim of their innocence could only do so if they had not initially pleaded guilty, something criminal defendants do for a variety of reasons, um, none of which may actually be because they're guilty. So why not broaden the ability for New Yorkers to prove their innocence after a conviction, which was essentially the common law of the land for New York between 2014 and 2018? The first reason is that those who advocate that individuals plead guilty, even though they're not really guilty, I push back upon that premise. I don't think, quite frankly, that that is as widespread as some people articulate and some people argue for. Has it happened? Yes. I've been DA over seven years now. Before that, uh, you know, I was in the office years ago, you know, trying homicides. Uh, I've been involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, I was a former judge uh, for for four years. Uh, When I was in the Navy, I was, you know, trying cases, trying court martial cases in the criminal justice system, you know, in the military. So, you know, I've been around the criminal justice system at many different levels, wearing many different hats in my career as a lawyer. And I'm just not buying the fact that people plead guilty when they're not guilty. Do I believe it's been done? Yes. Do I believe it happens? Absolutely. But it's not as widespread as people think. The second reason why is that it would literally, and, and this is what, again one of the main reasons why we're opposing. Uh, you know, we we argue the governor vetoed the 440, the, the wrongful conviction bill here. It would literally open the floodgates, Dave, uh, David, on, on the uh, on cases now. Okay, because quite frankly, the majority of cases that occur in the criminal justice system are resolved with a guilty plea, whether it's to the charge or whether to a lesser included offense. Very very few cases actually go to trial, all right? So if if you are going to allow guilty plea verdicts to be retried or reopened up, you would literally shut down the criminal justice system. Uh, And so logistically, it's just not feasible to do that. So with regards to that idea that it would, quote, unquote, open up the floodgates, under the legislation, everyone behind bars couldn't simply get a retrial. A judge would have to determine that there is a a colorable claim, meaning a a plausible legal claim that might lead to a case being overturned, which is a a similar threshold for the wrongful conviction pathways in Texas, California, and New Jersey. And speaking with both prosecutors and uh, criminal justice advocates in those states, they argue that their state is not being overrun with cases. So why shouldn't we trust this barrier to entry? Why shouldn't we trust that judges should be allowed to to weed out those cases with a colorable claim and assume that only the legitimate cases would make it to uh, a new trial? Because one one of the foundational principles of the criminal justice system is the concept of finality, especially when it comes to victims. In a lot of crimes, uh, especially homicides, assaults, rapes, large-scale financial crimes, uh, burglaries, robberies, you know, we, you, you name it, all right? And, and, a, and a host of crimes that occur, 
the, the victim has gone through a traumatic process or the victim's family has gone through a traumatic event. And so while the criminal justice system is never going to bring full closure to the victim. I, I tell my homicide victims, families all the time that obviously I'm never going to be able to bring back your loved one. So I'm never going to be able to give you full closure. But what I can give you is legal closure. What I can give the victim of a rape um, is legal closure. Obviously, the traumatic event that occurred uh, to that man or woman when they were raped uh, is never going to go away. But I, I can give them legal closure. Uh, and so the, the criminal justice system with a trial and or with a guilty plea and an appeals process that has time frames in it and mechanisms in it to uh, ensure not, not, not necessarily a swift uh, a conclusion, but just a conclusion to the, the, the actual uh, traumatic event that occurred uh, in this victim's life. Um, it is it is an important part of our our system, um, and so when when you have the ability, perhaps to you know without have any real concrete reason, okay, and this bill is, is so ambiguous that it would you know it would give judges, and again, I, I haven't read the Texas bill or the California bill or other states' bills, but um, the the way the New York bill was written and, and passed that the governor vetoed, all right, you know. It, it would it would give judges, in my opinion, um, uh, any reason to open back up the trial again uh, and open back up the process again um, without any real uh, constraints at all. Uh, and so when you're talking, you know, years later, you know, it, it, it's problematic. I mean, like, like take, for example, David, I, I just exonerated someone. Well, I think that I didn't exonerate her. I, I just consented to a motion to vacate someone's conviction last week, all right? There was a, a woman by the name of Renee Lynch who served 23 years in jail uh, for uh, a homicide. Um, there was um, a, uh, it came to my attention upon my review of, of the matter that the police department, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, did not turn over all the fingerprints that were taken to the DA's office back then 25 years ago, and as such were never given over to the defendants. My Conviction Integrity Unit uh, investigated this, came to that conclusion as well, um, and I consented to the vacation of her conviction, all right? Um, now, I'm in the position now, do I retry the case 25 years later? And I can't because of the, of the 10 witnesses that were um, called a trial. Actually, there was 15 witnesses called a trial. Of the 15 witnesses called a trial, six are dead, three don't remember, and one I can't find. So of my 10 witnesses, uh, 10 of the 15, they're gone uh, or can't remember. And so it'd be virtually impossible to retry cases 25, 30 years later if you allow every case to be reviewed that occurred in, in the history of, of, of Buffalo area county. Uh, so again, there, there are just a number of reasons why this was a bad bill. And after a quick break, we'll continue our discussion about legislation that was vetoed that would have expanded the pathways for overturning wrongful convictions with our guest, Erie County District Attorney John Flynn, who serves as president of the District Attorneys Association of the state of New York.
Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse. For listeners just joining us, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're continuing our conversation with Erie County District Attorney John Flynn, who serves as president of the District Attorneys Association of the State of New York, who's speaking about legislation that was vetoed at the end of 2023 that would have expanded the pathways for overturning wrongful convictions. So I want to return to what you raised there, this idea that all these past convictions are going to be brought up and there won't be any end in sight for the victims of crimes. But the the legislation specifically spells out that idea of a colorable claim, which is a meaningful, plausible threshold that we would let a, a judge determine. And prosecutors often talk about giving judges more discretion when it comes to, say, something like a pretrial release. So why trust judges to make the right decisions on those cases, but say, we don't trust you to determine when there actually is a meaningful chance of overturning a conviction? It seems hypocritical. Well, because I, I, I don't think that colorable is actually a concrete framework. For... But does it need to be concrete? Because you've you've said previously, and judges and prosecutors around the state who oppose this bill have said, we trust judges, you know, broadly with pretrial condition uh, decisions. So you guys have already been on the record saying you want to give broad latitude to judges. So why not broad latitude here? And that's not even what it is, though, because it's not broad latitude because colorable claims are a definable term. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I'll push back on that a little bit. Okay. I mean, I, I'm not sure "colorable" "colorable" is a, a, a defined term. But 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 let, let me address your your first point, though. Okay, we're not always talking about the same judge. All right. So if you have a judge now, okay, who is trying over a prosecution right now, this judge right here currently is evaluating all the witnesses. He or she is conducting all the hearings. They're seeing all the evidence fresh uh, and in person. They're seeing how the witnesses react on the stand, et cetera, et cetera. You, you go 20, 25 years later, okay, you got a different judge now, all right? How is that second judge going to have the same data that was in place before the judge who actually heard the witnesses and saw the body language of the witness on the stand and was there in real time to the actual crime. I mean, again, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that judges should be able to give a second look unless it's way more than colorable. So another aspect of the veto bill was that it would address the status of New Yorkers behind bars for crimes and punishments that no longer exist in their past fashion as a result of liberalization of our criminal justice system. What do you think of that part of the legislation, which had actually been scaled back from earlier versions, which would have led to really an automatic release, basically? This kind of ties into the mandatory minimum uh, discussions that we're having right now. So, you know, right now we're, you know, there, there, there's a debate and I'm part of a task force uh, that's reviewing mandatory minimums. Some of us are making the argument that, again, there's mechanisms in place already to allow people to get released before their sentence is up. All right. There's clemency procedures. Uh, there's pardon procedures by the by the governor. All right. So, I mean, again, there, there are mechanisms in place already that would allow a uh, criminally convicted to, to, to get out, okay? And again, there, there's also 
it, it, you know, things that we as prosecutors can do as well. So take, for example, the, the case that I mentioned earlier about when I went, when I, I uh, consented to the motion to vacate Renee Lynch uh, last week, uh, during the course of my investigation, which, you know, took, you know, almost a year, you know, she was up for parole before I had made my final decision. And I wrote a letter to the parole board uh, consenting to her release. Uh, you know, so she was released, you know, almost a year ago, well, months before I made a decision on whether or not I was going to uh, consent to the vacation of her conviction and ultimately dismiss the indictment against her. So, again, I would argue that there are mechanisms in place already that allow for that to happen. Since the state has chosen not to update the wrongful conviction procedures or, or expand uh, criminal procedure law 440, do you think the state has a responsibility to give criminal defendants greater resources and options at the onset of an arrest and prosecution, or are you happy with the dynamic as it exists now? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think there's any correlation to that at all. I, I, I think that there, are, you know, that that defendants are given a right to counsel um, immediately, um, and so you know the the right to counsel attaches. Um, you know, upon certain triggering mechanisms in, in our in our system, uh, the reality is is that the you know that that the right to counsel uh, pretty much attaches almost right away. And you know, the, the overwhelming majority of cases that I have in my office, you know, someone's got a lawyer, you know, very early on, uh, and that and that lawyer then you know is there to uh, to to preserve the rights uh, of the defendant and to make sure that uh, the defendant gets a fair trial. Uh, in addition to that, that that's my responsibility too. Uh, my responsibility as a prosecutor, uh, you know, is to ensure uh, that the that the criminal defendant is given a fair trial, um, and I take that very seriously. I I, I openly said that much much to my detriment uh, during the during the top shooting that we had here, uh, you know, on, back in Buffalo in May 2020 too. Um, you know, uh, uh, which was obviously the most high profile case we've had in this state in years. Um, and I publicly stated, um, you know, within a week of that of that shooting, that I need to ensure that the defendant gets a fair trial. So it's not just on the defense attorney; it's also on prosecutors as well. And and again, I, I think that we as DAs across the state take that very seriously. Well, finally, that right to counsel you mentioned is something that obviously exists for criminal defendants. But do you think some form of that should exist for New Yorkers who are looking to uh, appeal a, a conviction? Because we've heard that a lot of the cases that are brought that try to utilize the criminal procedure law are tossed out because of procedural errors, basically minutia, before the claim can even be considered uh, on its substance because these are filed by a lot of New Yorkers behind bars who are just basically trying to make the best of, say, the legal library that they have access to. So what do you think about counsel uh, on the back end as well? Well, they, they they do have a have the counsel throughout the entire appeal process. All right, so during the appellate process, their counsel is is, is with them. All right, but that's the appeals on like errors with the actual trial, though, right? Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, I'm talking about more about trying to prove innocence after the fact. You know, for if new new evidence comes up or, or what have you. Yeah, no, from a from a thirty thousand feet macro level. Um, I don't have real issue with that. Tell you the truth, I mean, you know, uh, again, it, it would I would have to see how 
you know, it would be, you know, the, the, the minutia of that and how exactly it'd be worked out. Who's going to um, pay for it. Yeah. Who's going to pay for it. Um, uh, you know, again, that, that really doesn't concern me as well. I mean, I mean, it does, but I mean, the taxpayer does obviously, but I mean, you know, I, I, I I'd want to make sure uh, that, you know, if, if someone has uh, new evidence uh, that comes forward, that would exonerate someone that they deserve to have the right to counsel. Okay. So from a theoretical point of view, right. uh, I have no problem with that. All right. Again, the, the devil's, you know, would be in the details on something like that though. But again, I mean, I, 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 I know all the 62 DAs in Erie County uh, in, in New York state. All right. You know, if, if information and how it works with me is that if information is brought to my attention, and I, I don't care who it is, it could be the inmate, it could be a family member, it could be attorney. If information is brought to me that says, hey, can you look at this? Because something's not right here, all right? I'm going to have someone look at it. They don't need an attorney for that. Now, again, do, does it help the individual to have an attorney? I'm not going to minimize that, absolutely. Um, and so from a conceptual standpoint, I, I don't have a problem with that, obviously. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we've been speaking with Erie County District Attorney John Flynn. District Attorney Flynn, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. Have a good day. Capital Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.